This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm surprised to see so many of you on a Sunday morning. Uh, Normally on a Sunday morning I'm sleeping in, but I got up late. you know, when I, I never, ever imagined that my career would, in my career, that, that I would become an expert in polygamy. Um, certainly, it's, it was not a career choice, a career path that I chose. Um, it sort of fell to me, though, uh, and it fell to me in a very odd way, which is I needed to write a column one day, and I didn't have anything to write about. And uh, someone had sent me an email saying, why don't you write about why don't you write about mindful? Nobody ever does. And I just done a series on uh, human trafficking, and it was human trafficking involving women from from Asia being trafficked into Canada into prostitution. And the woman who sent me the email, her name's Jancis Andrews. Um, she had been fighting against Bountiful for a couple of years and had seen it on TV. And she, to this day, has never been to Bountiful, but. Um, Anyway, I said to Jan, I emailed Jancis back, and I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And so she sent me a contact list that included the private cell phone number of the Attorney General of Utah. And that's how I started doing this story, which was, uh, my first column was in, on May 4, 2004. So this is now 13 years and counting. Um, and part of the reason that I continue to do it is is first of all, I, I thought it was a tabloid story. I felt like this was kind of Geraldo Rivera and I should be twisting my mustache. Um, but then I, what I started to realize quite, quite quickly was that this is, um, is such an interesting story of, and that it involves everything in our society. The other thing is I kept hoping somebody else would just start doing it, right? Just take this away from me. But nobody did. And prior to me doing it, one of my colleagues had actually written a series of stories of utopian communities in British Columbia, and he included Bountiful. And I have to tell you that Bountiful is anything but a utopian community. This has been a long struggle, and for the first time ever in British Columbia, two people from Bountiful are now in jail. They were sentenced on Friday. They were taken away in handcuffs. I was in the courtroom. The two of them, and I'll tell you a little bit about them. Brandon James Blackmore is 71 years old. He was raised, um, he was born in Cardston, Alberta, raised for for part of his time in Bountiful, where his father had gone to practice polygamy. His wife, Emily Ruth Gale, Emily, yes, Emily Ruth Gale Crossfield Blackmore. Um, she's 60, and her father was moved to Bountiful when she was a young girl. And he went on to be called, he went on to call himself Prophet Anias, and he, re- he led his own breakaway sect that was quite um, violent 
And um, she was fortunate in some ways, I guess, to um, stay in Bountiful. She has a grade seven or eight education. She quit school in order to become the third wife to Brandon Blackmore. She has 11 children. Um, Gail is the first woman ever in the fundamentalist Mormon universe to be put into jail. Um, when they announced the verdict that she would be going to jail for seven months with an 18 months probation, there was stunned, people were stunned in the courtroom. And I have to say, I was one of them. My big fear was that she would um, actually be given house arrest and would go back to Bountiful and pretend nothing had happened. And that's what, the way it would have been seen. But to, for her to be led away in handcuffs, one of her daughters burst out of the, out of the courtroom in tears. She was wailing in the, in the hallway. Her daughter, um, another daughter, stood up and demanded to speak to the judge. But what they're in jail for is that in 2004, um, Warren Jeffs sent, he called up Brandon and said, I've had a revelation from God. Your daughter, your 13-year-old daughter, belongs to me. You have to bring her to me right away. Within hours of that phone call, Brandon Blackmore and his wife, Gail, took their 13-year-old daughter and their other daughter, um, who was already married to Warren Jeffs, the prophet, and they got in the car, they drove across the border. The border is very close. It's like a five-minute drive to the border. They drove across the border, and by the next day, they were in Colorado City, Utah. Two days later, the parents went to see Warren Jeffs, and he said, she belongs to me. I'm taking her as a wife. Tomorrow's the wedding. And he said he was at this point he was a fugitive, and he told them about these places of refuge, and the next day the 13-year-old was married. The parents were there, and they didn't say anything. In fact, they approved. They approved even knowing that within the fundamentalist Mormon universe that they live in, fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that the only reason for marriage is for procreation. What they believe is that they must have as many children as possible to bring spirit children into the world so that they will be raised as God's chosen. And they believe, and what young women are taught from birth, is that they must be obedient to them, absolutely obedient to their fathers, to their husbands, to the priesthood authority. If they're not obedient, regardless of when you're, whether you're a male, female, boy, girl, if you're not obedient, you can be kicked out. And if you're kicked out, you become an apostate and you lose your salvation. And you can no longer have any contact with the community. So needless to say, when they handed over their daughter, their 13-year-old daughter, they were almost certain that their daughter was going to have sex with the prophet or the prophet would have sex with her. And he did. He waited until she was 14, which was a few months later. <coughs> and then he recorded the rape. That tape was played in court, and you could hear his heavy breathing and his monotone voice, and this tiny, frightened little voice acquiescing. 
When the parole officer interviewed Gail Blackmore <clears throat> for the pre-sentence report, the parole officer asked Gail, would you do it again? And she refused to say. I think that is the reason that the judge decided she should go to jail. Because she, would, she has no remorse and she had no qualms. I think she has no qualms, would do the same thing. And she has a 17-year-old daughter, still. It's less clear to me that Brandon Blackmore, even though he's the one who initiated this, um, that he would do the same thing. I'm told, and he told uh, from the sentencing decision, um, it says that he's starting to understand that maybe what he did was wrong. I mean, this is startling to all of us that he's just starting to understand that handing a 13-year-old girl to a 49-year-old man as his 80-something wife, he has at least 80 wives, Warren Jeffs, that, that somehow this was a good thing. But for the parents, this secures their place in heaven. This gives, their daughter is married to the prophet who is the mouthpiece of God. Brandon Blackmore's son, Brandon Seth Blackmore, <coughs> testified against his father. He left the group. He was kicked out of the group. He went home one day, and there was nothing left in his home. There were no kids, no wife. Everything was gone. And he was told, you're out of here. You have to go. You're no longer part of us. Brandon Seth testified against his father because he said, what happened to his sister, his sisters, because another one was taken as well, a 16-year-old, what happened to my sisters was so wrong. And this is one of the things that's fascinating, is how you can have these people who are totally willing to do anything for the prophet, and yet this young man knows it's wrong. But the more frightening thing is the 13-year-old. She's now 26 years old. She was in court on Friday. And she tried to speak to the judge. He refused to hear her, which was the right thing to do, because she has been given many, many, many opportunities to speak. She was approached by the prosecution, asked if she would testify against her parents. She said no. Um, they felt that her testimony wouldn't help their case, so they didn't call her. Gail Blackmore, her mother, refused to have legal, legal help. She was self-represented, self but she did nothing in court. She refused to say anything, put up no defense. Um, Brandon Blackmore had a lawyer, but he, did, he gave no instructions to his lawyer, so his lawyer couldn't really do very much. And what that now 26-year-old girl told the parole officer when she was interviewed for her parents' sentencing reports was that she would tell him nothing because that's what they're told. You cannot speak against the prophet. What she did say is that she loved her parents very much. She describes her parents as gentle and kind. But, oh, she was overheard outside the courtroom after the judge refused to hear as saying that what she wanted to tell him is that she wanted to serve their sentence for them that she still believes that what they did was right. Even though she's now 26 years old, 
She has no husband. She has no prospect of a husband because she's married to the prophet who's in jail. Warren Jeffs is serving a life sentence plus 25 years for the aggravated assault of a 12-year-old and the sexual assault of another 12-year-old. But she will not speak against the prophet. The fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is what once was called a cult. It's a word that has so fallen into disfavor that I have never been allowed to use that word in the newspaper. Um, our lawyers say it can't be used because of it's a pejorative term. It's fallen into disfavor because many of those churches that are under the traditional definition of cult, they have lobbied well and hard to get it that designation taken away. Amongst those who've lobbied to get rid of cult is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the mainstream Mormon church. But part of the reason they've done that is because the LDS church is on the banned list in Germany where they actually have cult legislation that says you cannot be there. So the LDS is banned from Germany, as is Scientology and several of the other groups that we've heard of, the Moonies and so on. But if you don't think this is a cult, let me read you a few excerpts from Warren Jeffs' June 4th revelation. It was written from his jail cell in Texas, and it's signed, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he, writes, he writes in a very convoluted style that um, I think he believes is biblical sound. <laughs> so here we go. I have, since a week ago on Sabbath early morning, removed quiet way by angel power off this world out of all nations, more than three billion people, all guilty of spirit of murder. Amen. I, Jesus Christ, must remove all murder spirit prior to my glory power coming. Amen. My now prophet on world, Warren Jeffs, told to make this writing record, accomplishing cleansing of all nation order to be ready for Jesus Christ coming in full glory power of heaven. Amen. Do no more sin living. Remove the, li the live spirit of murder, of violence, of adultery, or of Sodom sin, sin all of murder spirit, of full order, no forgiveness of God, unholy sin. Do no sin of lust, love for evil, the way of Lucifer. I come soon to do full holy order cleansing of my Zion, two lands in particular. New Zion on America land order, old Jerusalem city to be Zion rebuilt over Zion celestial power of Jesus Christ order. In this revelation that is read over and over and over in Bountiful even today, he goes on to talk about 4.7 billion people who were, in a week, disappeared. They were lifted away. Most, they were judged unworthy to live in full murder spirit. They were from almost every nation. There were a couple of, couple of tens of millions from the United States. But Warren Jeffs, by the way, said that he saved Texas. Um, <laughs> the entire country of Indonesia disappeared, according to Warren Jeffs. 
Papua New Guinea disappeared, and a quarter of Australia. So if you have friends, you might want to call them. <laughs> For more than 70 years, um, people have been practicing fundamentalist Mormonism in Bountiful, and how that, the, the most obvious, uh, the most obvious thing of that is that, that they practice polygamy. In my view, um, Bountiful is a canary in the Canadian coal mine when it comes to women's and children's rights. As such, let me say, the canary died a long time ago. The Bountiful experience doesn't bode well for other minority women and children in closed communities. But what Bountiful has been is a beacon of hope for all pedophile prophets and religious fanatics. For all but a few years, the Canadian government has been loath to limit religious freedom. The one brief period of time was in 1893. That's when the first polygamy law was passed, and Mormon's celestial or plural marriages were specifically singled out in that legislation. That law was amended in 1953, to drop the references to Mormons and to celestial or plural marriages. One of the proponents of those changes was a guy named John Blackmore. He was the social credit MLA for Lethbridge, and he's the uncle of both Brandon Blackmore and Canada's most notorious polygamist, Winston Blackmore. John Blackmore didn't practice polygamy, but he was excommunicated from the mainstream Mormon church because he didn't believe the revelation of its prophet, Wilfred Woodruff, that overturned the earthly practice of polygamy. John Blackmore believed, as do all of the fundamentalist Mormons, that when God told Joseph Smith that having multiple wives was the only path to the highest realm of heaven, celestial kingdom, that that was the truth and that no subsequent revelations by the subsequent prophets could overturn that. What the fundamentalist Mormons believe is that none of the doctrine that Joseph Smith wrote down after transcribing those golden tablets can be changed. But it's a revelatory religion, so we, there's obviously going to be conflict because subsequent prophets have subsequent revelations. So, in 1890, with the American government breathing down the neck of Utah and the, the LDS Church, Wilfred Woodruff just happened to have a revelation that maybe we should not practice polygamy. After, when, when Canada revised the law in 1953, it's fair to note, however, that the law had only been used a couple of times. I've only been able to find two cases. One of the men who was charged was First Nations. The other one was Chinese. The Mormons were never charged. Um, I have theories about that, but we'll maybe get to that. So this law is never, it was brought in by a group of Christians to protect monogamous marriages. Um, to protect the status quo. Then in 1982, along comes the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. 
when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was passed, John Blackmore's nephew, Winston Blackmore, was the Bishop of Bountiful. He went out and bought a copy of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and framed it and put it on his office wall. Ever since the Charter of Rights was, was passed, the kids in Bountiful have been told that they have an absolute right to practice their religion as it's put forth. What they weren't told is that they have other rights as well. The only right that they understand in the Charter of Rights, the only right that they think exists in the Charter of Rights, is the right to freedom, to freedom of religion. But what Winston Blackmore has done ever since the passage of the Charter is he's convinced the government of British Columbia that he has an absolute right to practice his religion. Not only has the BC government been loath to rein in the abuses, it's actually enabled them. It's poured hundreds of that's an exaggeration. It's poured millions of dollars into two private schools in the community. Those private schools spend an inordinate amount of time teaching religion. Girls are taught that their highest and best use is to be a plural wife and to have as many children as physically possible. The boys are taught that they should have many wives. They're also taught that they must be obedient. And the boys are taught that they must work hard and hand over almost everything that they earn to the church so that the elders and the high priests and the bishops can have as many wives as possible. But the arithmetic of polygamy mitigates against the boys at least as much as against the girls. Because if Winston Blackmore, who has had 28 wives, it means that 27 people don't get a wife. Over the decades, those schools produced no more than a handful of high school graduates. And for years, they never produced a single university graduate. For all of those years that we've been pouring money into the schools and we're still paying for them, the problems that have existed in that community have gone on. Those problems are endemic to polygamy. And among them are forced marriages or coerced marriages, sexual exploitation of girls as child brides, forced child labor of boys and girls so that these men can support their exceedingly large families. There's been child trafficking, as we found out on Friday. There's been the expulsion of surplus boys. And there's been the forced relocation of women and children when their husbands and fathers are suddenly deemed unworthy. You can go home one day and be told by the elder that suddenly that man is no longer your father, that this is your new father and you must call him father. The government has been aware of these abuses for at least 20 years. But various legal opinions provided in the early 1990s convinced the NDP Attorney General, Colin Gableman, that polygamy charges should not be laid because the law may not be constitutional. But it's not just polygamy charges that haven't been laid. No charges have been laid. Since then, what has dominated the discussion of Bountiful is whether the limits to religious freedom 
if there are limits to religious freedom. That's the backdrop to every investigation, whether it's abuse, whether it's polygamy. And every time the big brains in the legal community have looked at it, they've balked at charges. Generations of women and children have been sacrificed by a succession of attorneys general and government lawyers who firmly believed that religious freedom trumps all of the other rights. Two special prosecutors refused to lay charges, citing concerns about religious freedom. Finally, the government referred the issue to the BC Supreme Court for an opinion on the polygamy law's validity. It was a long and expensive hearing that ended in 2011. And Chief Justice Robert Bauman concluded that all of those previous legal experts were wrong. In this period of time between the first legal opinions in 1990 and 2011, a whole generation of girls, and when you think about it, 13 year olds, right? There are almost two generations of girls who were put into slavery. What that did was it cleared the way for criminal charges. But it was still four more years before any charges were laid. It was another two years before the trials began. That first trial began last November. And it was, used, it was under a section of the criminal code that had never been used before. It's section 273. And it says that it is, it is illegal you cannot remove a child from Canada for a purpose that would be illegal in Canada. It is a, the reason that this section was used was because the offenses that they were charged with were in 2004. That predates the child, the child trafficking laws that we have, and it even predates human trafficking. But somehow the special prosecutor, who took a very long time, but he found the section. It had never been tried before. Unfortunately, it only has a penalty of five years, so that is a problem. But he did lay charges. This special prosecutor, Peter Wilson, after the way is cleared, so we, we think that we know that polygamy is a justifier, that, that, that is a justifiable limit on religious freedom. He laid, he laid, the, he laid two polygamy charges. One against Winston Blackmore, and on Winston Blackmore's indictment, there were 24 women's names listed. He laid one charge of polygamy against James Oler. There were four women listed on his indictment. A fifth one was later added. And he laid removal charges. That's what the, the section 273. He, he laid removal charges against both Brandon Blackmore and his wife, Gail, and also against James Oler. James Oler was the bishop who replaced Winston Blackmore when Winston was excommunicated. Um, Winston was excommunicated because he lost in a power struggle with Warren Jeffs to be the prophet. James Oler was acquitted of the removal charge, but that's um, being appealed and that will be heard later this year. Um, in July, James Oler and Winston Blackmore were convicted on one count each of polygamy. The interesting thing about Winston Blackmore is that he has never denied being a polygamist. He's never denied that he had child brides. 
as many as 10 of his 24 brides were under the age of 18. And I hate to call them brides because I, it's, more, it, it's, it's really an unfair term, but it's kind of a shorthand. Between the time that Winston Blackmore was, the trial ended, and the, and the, convic and the verdict was announced, he had three more kids. He's got 148 children. Wow. We're paying for those kids under the child tax credit. In fact, most of what fuels that community is money that the women are getting from the child tax credit, which they then hand over, and that's what they run on. But that trial's not over yet. So there is, we don't know what kind of sentences there are because Winston Blackmore says he's going to challenge the verdict. Why? because of religious freedom. He's, made, he's going to make a constitutional challenge, which will be heard hopefully this fall, and he's going to argue that this is his religious right. He stood outside the court and said, I would have been, I would have been disappointed if I'd not been found guilty, because that would mean denying my religion. Bountiful to me represents a massive systemic failure on the part of governments, on the part of citizens, and on the part of li civil libertarians. It is, in my view, a slow motion tragedy. And my thinking about Bountiful has always been informed by what um, Utah's then Attorney General Mark Shirtliff said to me when I made the first phone call to him in, in May of 2004. Um, Mark Shirtliff said, that the 35,000 FLDS members are the Taliban of North America. In 2004, that was only three years um, after Canada had sent troops into Afghanistan and partially justified that we were going there to rescue women and children from radical Islam. We were going to liberate them the women could take off their burqas. We were going to make sure that girls could go to school and that boys weren't put into forced militias. Yet all of these years later, we've never had a rescue mission for the children and women of Bountiful. Instead, we've been mired in an academic, legalistic debate about religious freedom. Shining a spotlight on the community has led to some improvements, but it hasn't dissuaded them from what they do. As I mentioned, Winston Blackmore is still having babies. Winston Blackmore has taken more wives. <laughs> he doesn't take them now till they're 18, and he doesn't call them wives. He calls them friends, friends with benefits. He has a ridiculously large family. And even if you believe that there is no abuse whatsoever, there is no way that a man can be a proper father to 148 children or that any parent can be a proper parent to 148 children. But what about those other reclusive religious communities or immigrant and refugee community, communities where language barriers limit women's educations and connections to the mainstream society? I want to emphasize that I wholeheartedly support Canada's commitment to bringing in refugees and immigrants. But I don't believe we should bring people into Canada if we are not going to protect the rights of women and children once they're here. 
We need to take this seriously, that when we offer people refuge in Canada, that they have the full rights of citizens in this country. That their rights as individuals are not going to be trumped by religious rights of fanatics. We can't let tolerance blind us to the abuses that may be taking place in places like Bountiful, in other minority communities, because it is happening. Coerced marriages within the South Asian community in Surrey are common enough that Mosaic, an immigrant settlement society, recently wrote a handbook to help its staff recognize the signs of distress, either among women and girls already in forced marriages, or to identify those at risk of being put into a coerced marriage. There have been well-reported high-profile cases, both here and in Ontario, of so-called honor killings. Less reported are the cases of other so-called religious traditional practices, cultural practices, such as female genital mutilation. And only recently I've heard of this horrible practice called breast ironing. Mothers pound or otherwise flatten the breasts of pubescent girls in an order to, to stop their development. The rationale that some of these mothers make is that it will make her less likely to be sexually harassed or raped, It'll make her less likely to get married at an early age or become pregnant outside of marriage. And some have even argued that they're doing it for the good of their daughters because by being less attractive, maybe they'll be able to finish school. With all these problems and challenges, it's sometimes hard to be optimistic. But I am an optimist. During the Blackmores trial in November, I had a chance to get reacquainted with two women who had a been ardent defenders of polygamy and bountiful when I first met them in 2004 and 2005. One of them told me that her lovely daughter, who was only 14 when I met her, um, this mother had, put, had agreed and had allowed her daughter to be married at 16, and uh, her daughter was put into a very abusive marriage. Uh, when I saw her in two, I'd met her in 2004, I saw her again in 2005, and this poor girl was, was beaten. You could tell she had been beaten. And her daughter now has left. The mother has left. And her daughter, when I spoke to, um, when I spoke to Susie, the daughter was traveling in Thailand. The other person that I became reacquainted with is Esther Palmer. She testified against the FLDS. She testified against Brandon Blackmore and against Gail Blackmore, and she testified against her brother, James Oler. Esther had been one of Bountiful's midwives, and under oath at the trial, Esther admitted that when she had been interviewed by the RCMP in 2008 and 2009, she had lied to police about the ages of the mothers whose babies she delivered. Esther said she did it to protect her brother, Jim Oler. She said she'd also lied because all her life she'd been taught that it was okay to lie for the Lord. She'd been taught that it, she must defend the religion at all costs, even at the cost of innocent children. She now feels terrible remorse about it. She was forced to leave Bountiful in 2012. One of the reasons she left is because 
there was yet another revelation that the end of the world was coming, and she said she was tired of getting ready for the end of the world, only to have it not happen. <laughs> when she questioned it, and questioned, she, at one point she said to her husband, her priesthood head, he said, you must be better, Esther. The reason we're not the, the reason the lifting up is not coming is because we're not good enough. We're not worthy enough. And she said to him, okay, you tell me, you write down for me every minute of every day what I should do to be better. Of course he didn't. But she was disrespectful to her husband, so eventually she was deemed unworthy. But only after he had been kicked out, by the way. She has been mostly happy to leave, but it meant that she had to leave some of her children behind. Four of, four of her nine children have never spoken to her since she left. One of them, a daughter, sat in the front row and glared at her mother throughout Esther's testimony and left without speaking to Esther. That daughter was also among the weeping FLDS women on Friday when Gail and Brandon Blackmore were led away in handcuffs. I didn't recognize Esther when I saw her in November. When I had met her in 2005, she was wearing pioneer dress, she had swoop hair with braided at the back, and I said to her, Esther, you don't look anything like you used to. And she just laughed, and she said, it's because I'm a different person now. Last year, her 32-year-old sister left Bountiful with five children. It's been a terrible struggle for her. Esther kept her at her house for a while, but she can't, Esther can't cope with all these kids, plus Amy has to find her own life. Amy has a grade six education. She has no work experience, no resume. She'd never had a bank account before. She'd been taught to distrust outsiders. She has no idea of how the world works. Not only does she need financial help, she's got five children, she needs a home. There are not many places, as we know, that will take a single mother with five children. She has no financial support other than the child tax credit, and now she can get welfare. Esther says what these people need who are leaving Bountiful are all of those same kinds of services and resources that we provide refugees, because they have no idea how to function in our world. That's how far removed these Canadian-born women, children, and men are from mainstream society. And it's worse now for the FLDS than it was five years ago. Because from his jail cell, Warren Jeffs, a few years ago, forced the school to close. Those children in Bountiful, on the FLDS side, as opposed to Winston Blackmore's side, those children on the FLDS are being supposedly being homeschooled by mothers who have grade six educations. Under British Columbia's homeschooling, homeschooling Act, there are two ways to homeschool. There are people who homeschool and they register through a program like HomeLinks or through a school, and they are provided with supports. They get, they get curriculum support, they get support from teachers, um, they have oversight, the teachers will look at the work and, and sort of grade them, 
And they, can, they will get, eventually, their dogwood certificate if they follow the steps. There's another thing that you can do where you just simply say, I'm homeschooling my kid. All of this is part of the reason that I've been doing this story for so long. It's got so many facets to it that are all fascinating. The reason that I am optimistic, though, is that people like Amy leave. People like Brandon Seth Blackmore have the strength to testify against their parents. That people like Esther will stand up in court and admit that she lied. She perjured herself. But they're strong people. They're resilient people. They have, amongst all of their other beliefs, they're very hardworking people. They are not evil. They're just programmed. But they need help. They need our help to get out of there. And I don't know how that happens. I don't know what that looks like. But I think I am um, heartened by, S by uh, Gail Blackmore going to jail because for the first time it says to those women, you have to, you are also responsible. That you can't say, I was only following orders, which as we all know is, of course, the failed Nuremberg defense. Anyway, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to take questions.